Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. Today, we're joined by Kevin Williamson, a National Review Roving Correspondent, National Review Institute Fellow and Author. His latest book arrives November 17, uh, just in time for Christmas shopping. It's titled Big White Ghetto, Dead Broke, Stone Cold Stupid, and High on Rage in the Dank Woolly Wilds of the Real America. Kevin, thanks for joining us again. The perfect Christmas present, really. <laughs> the only Christmas present. The only Christmas present you'll ever need. Grandma will love it. <laughs> so I pre-ordered the book, but I haven't read it yet because it's not out at the time of this recording. But I, I wanted to go prepare for it a little bit. And so I went looking to see if there was any reviews. And I see that you've been writing columns for a while now on the white ghetto or big white ghetto since like 2013, 2014. So it seems like this idea has been in your mind a while. When did you when did you get the idea for the book? Well, I've been meaning to do a collection of this stuff for a long time. And uh, I figured this would be a good time to uh, bring one out because it's an election year and I didn't really want to write an election year book or a campaign book or uh, the inevitable where do conservatives go from here. Uh, book. I figure a lot of other people have stuff to say about that. So, you know, I've been doing a lot of, uh, for the last 10 years, these long form reports on poverty and drug addiction and uh, all sorts of dysfunction, but also some of the interesting good things in the uh, middle of the country from, um, you know, farming to the oil and gas industry and other stuff. So it's kind of uh, an attempt to catalog some of the, the facts on the ground in, uh, in parts of the country, they don't get written about that much, and that people in the media tend to not understand very well. In general, get you know, give us the idea. What's the what's the thesis of the book? Well, there isn't really a thesis in the book. The book is a uh, you know, it's a collection of uh, long form reported pieces about uh, different subjects that uh, kind of hang together thematically, I guess, in the sense that a lot of them have to do with unhappiness and with social problems that are not easily solved by public policy and that aren't strictly speaking obvious political issues. And uh, it's more about the way that the facts on the ground and the way we actually live our lives influences our thinking and our views about politics and our views about how to live in a society than it is about this or that bill or law or government program or election or anything like that. To what extent is what you talk about, how how regionalized is what you talk about in the book? Because I know you you talk you you've been various places, mm-hmm. and, and it seems to me. Correct me if I'm wrong. That a lot of when you talk about the opioid crisis and some of these other defun- dysfunctions, they're present everywhere, but the concentration is basically uh, runs along the the. Appalachia Mountains, uh, you know, up from uh, Pennsylvania, Ohio, down through some of the the Upper South, you know, over to Arkansas or whatever. Is that would you would you say that that's a, a fair characterization? Uh, is it is it broader than that? Well, the book is um, all the stories in the book are local stories in a sense that they have to do with the conditions in particular places and particular institutions in 
in particular communities. They're not really about uh, sort of broad national things. So part of the book is about Eastern Kentucky. There are parts of the book that are about West Texas. Part of the book's about San Bernardino, California. Uh, some of the books about Chicago. Some of the books about other places. So um, it, it jumps around all over the country a bit. But so, and I, um, I just talk about West Texas because mm-hmm. uh, we're Texans. Um, my impression is that, and this may change now with uh, you know the fall of oil or whatever, but that the situation in West Texas uh, has been a little bit different from some other parts of the country because you've had the oil and gas boom there, uh, as opposed to other you know like Kentucky or whatnot where you've had a cratering of coal or uh, other rust, you know, manufacturing jobs going away, that, that, that sort of thing. Uh, would you, I mean, what, so w- what's the situation in, in West Texas that you kind of talk about in the book? Yeah, I think you see a, a really big difference between the places where there are oil and gas jobs and the places where there aren't. So uh, one part of the book is about uh, Midland and the uh, oil and gas business there and the uh, challenges and opportunities associated with that. You know, it's been around for uh a long, long time there, but the character of that business has changed a lot. Uh, you know, in the uh, in the 1960s, there was a Rolls Royce dealership in Midland, Texas. It was a very different sort of uh, oil business back then. I think Midland had maybe 65,000 people at that point or something. Uh, it's a lot more, uh, it's less of a, you know, cowboy, uh, wild man kind of culture and more a bunch of engineers and nerds and geologists and logistics guys and, and, and that kind of stuff. It's a very... Uh, Growing up and sophisticated and high tech business now, um, but you know, not far from there is Lubbock, where I grew up. And I spent a day there in um, eviction court, uh, writing about the stories of people who were being evicted from their homes, and uh, you know the various kinds of trouble they got themselves into that led them to be in in that situation. And Lubbock's an interesting case because uh, you know it's got Texas Tech there, which is really the uh, underpinning of uh, of the local economy up there. And then the other big business, of course, is a very heavily subsidized agricultural business, cotton farming. So it's one of the most, you know, conservative and Republican counties in the uh, in the country, but it's entirely sustained by various kinds of welfare, either in the form of uh, farm subsidies or in the form of uh, the money that flows into the community because of the uh, higher education. I guess apart from the irony of that, um, let me ask you this big picture. Is that a good thing uh, or is it I know you uh, you you sometimes describe yourself as a as a libertarian. Mm -hmm. Uh, Should we should we be leaving those uh, places like like Lubbock and other places that are struggling, like we talk about Appalachia, we talk about the Rust Belt. Should should we be, you know, looking for ways to. support those areas, you, you know, specifically as opposed, you know, like, like support for places as opposed to supporting uh, people wherever they move. Do we have a, a, you know, I guess a political interest, a national interest in making sure that places like Lubbock or other places in the Rust Belt survive as the economy is changing? Yeah. Um, you know, communities come and go. And, uh, you know, places like Lubbock are college towns. So as long as there are state universities, there will always be college towns. And the same thing kind of applies at a different scale to state capitals like Austin. They're always going to have a different kind of economy that's based on public spending. And I think it would be uh, just unrealistic to pretend like that's not the case. 
Um, so college towns, particularly ones that have big state universities, are um, you know not in terrible shape, even when they've got um, not a lot of other economic activity there. And Lubbock isn't that um, bereft of activity outside of Texas Tech. And there are some other things going on there as well. Um, but, you know, even Lubbock, uh, where Lubbock is right now, isn't the original uh, Lubbock. Lubbock used to be in a different place, and that Lubbock went away because it just didn't make it economically. Uh, when they decided to uh, combine two cities up there, one was called Caprock and one was called Lubbock, uh, they actually located it in the uh, city that had been uh, Caprock. So if you go where the original Lubbock is, it's a big empty space out on the uh, out on the prairie. Uh, you know, Michael Brendan Darty and I had this sort of long... Uh, much discussed debate about uh, Garbutt, New York, which was really his choice uh, of places. And he used Garbutt as kind of the uh, stand in for, uh, you know, downscale, economically stagnant, uh, middle class, lower middle class, working class community. Uh, now, as it turns out, Garbutt actually isn't really quite that. It's uh, slightly above average income, but you're talking a lot about places like that. Uh, you know, Garbutt. Um, is a place where gypsum mining was a big deal, and that's the reason the city was there. And then gypsum mining kind of played out as an industry. It had a small renaissance some years later because of uh, Wallboard, uh, which uses gypsum. So that business came back for a while, but then it ultimately just didn't sort of make it. And there's this essay about Garbutt, I remember, that I, I quote in the piece, um, talking about how with the decline of the gypsum industry, you know, local businesses had declined, the hotels had gone out of business, they had you know, not very many schools left. Um, the churches had declined, all the rest of the stuff. That essay was published in 1902. Uh, so <laughs> the place is still there, kind of still limping on. Um, at some point, yeah, I think it's better just to um, let nature run its course. And for places that no longer have an underlying uh, economic or political or social reason to exist, simply disperse. Uh, communities come and go, cities come and go, little towns come and go. And um, I think that our sentimentality about that sort of thing can really be quite destructive. And so we get this thing of saying, well, why can't we, you know, get Google to build a facility in Eastern Kentucky so that there's more uh, economic vitality there. And it's just, uh, it's an unrealistic and nonsensical way of looking at these things. I think, first of all, because as I think the locals there in Alsley County, which I've written about a lot would tell you, um, if Google were to build a facility there, if Apple were to build something there, Tesla or something, They'd have to import the workers. Uh, they don't have people there that, um, you know, have the education or skills or qualifications to do the kind of work that those uh, companies need. It would be probably better just simply to uh, allow the normal forces of entropy and economics to disperse the people who live in those places and let them go find work and a better life in, uh, in some other place like, you know, all of our ancestors did. Uh, yeah, it's, it's people never want to hear that. Uh, and they get real mad when you say that. And there's a sense of entitlement. Why should I have to go anywhere in order to better my life? And um, the answer is no one planned it that way. This isn't some plot against you. It's just the way things are. There aren't any jobs where you are. If you want a job, then you're going to have to go someplace where there's more economic dynamism and more more vitality. And that's okay. These things happen. Yeah, I recall uh, you have a book on uh, the history of Detroit and its mm -hmm. decline and uh, I, I recall you, you made the point that the, the automotive industry sprang forth from, I guess it was a boat motor in, industry that was there before. And, and, and I guess talk a little bit about that, about how the, you know, even as the economy 
changes is when you have that you know that baseline industry and skill sets and all that it's it's easy just to keep moving along with the uh, with the economy but when you're, you don't have something it's really hard to bring back any type of new industry and business and so forth. Yeah, human capital is enormously important. It's probably the single most important variable in a modern economy like ours. And that's the reason why you see so much economic success in places like Silicon Valley and Austin. Um, They're places where there are big universities, so there's a lot of uh, highly skilled, uh, highly trained people coming out of the University of Texas or Stanford. They're also in places where people kind of want to live. They're attractive or various quality of life issues. So people go to, to, to be in those places. And so it's a lot easier to build on top of that when you've already got people there. Yeah, so that's the story with Detroit. Um, so at the end of the 19th century, in the early years of the 20th century, there was something like 100 automobile companies started in various places in the United States. And mostly they were in New England and uh, in Ohio, in the kind of industrial corridor in Ohio, Detroit had been sort of an afterthought, but um, the Detroit-based businesses were the ones that ended up really thriving in the long term, precisely for the reason you were talking about before, because they already had uh, machinists, engineers, uh, mechanics, people who knew how to build motors, and um, thus had skills that were transferable from the marine autom- from the marine motor business to the automotive business. And... Uh, Detroit was at that point already a pretty, you know, thriving middle class place. It went on to be, as 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 you know, in 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 some ways probably the wealthiest city in the world. Um, at least it was the city that had the highest per capita income in the United States, I guess in 1950, something like that. And then made a lot of bad political choices and uh and fell right off the map. So <laughs> I guess Detroit's a good example of uh, a series of unfortunate political choices can create that death spiral. Um, they weren't all but if we sort of choices go- either, it should be noted. I mean, some of these were choices that were made at the federal level having to do with the empowerment of uh, the UAW and um, and other labor groups. And that's it for me. That's a complicated story. I haven't written about it as much because I'm actually, for the most part, pretty a pretty pro-union guy. I think unions can actually play uh, – a really useful role in a modern labor market. Uh, the problem with the automotive industry in the United States isn't that it's unionized; it's that it's unionized by the UAW, which has you know, historically been uh, corrupt and um, ineffective, and, and has all sorts of other problems. Um, you know, if you if you compare with Germany, for instance, where you've got uh, I guess IG Metall is that their main um, union there, which represents automotive workers and other industrial workers and similar professions is a much larger and in many ways more powerful union even than the UAW is, but it's also a very effective, honest, uh, intelligently managed one. So often we allow ourselves in our political conversation to get into these really oversimplified things like we want regulation, we want deregulation. Well, that's a dumb discussion to have. I mean, we're going to have regulation of some sort of most kinds of businesses, whether it's banking or you know electricity generation or manufacturing cars or anything else. Question is, are we going to have smart regulations? Are they going to be intelligent? Are they going to be wise? Are they going to be enforced in a way that's economically efficient and sensible? Um, you know, we have, we want big government, we want small government. Well, big government doing what? Uh, you know, if you're at war with Hitler, you've got big government, you kind of need it. If you're not at war with Hitler, maybe you don't need such a big government. Um, 
we tend to avoid the specific granular conversations in our political discourse and have these big, you know, kind of axiomatic, uh, moralistic, broad principles that we talk about instead, which are really just almost entirely useless. But to uh, to be very axiomatic and broad, uh, where I was going was uh, you have a place like Detroit and you see the decline over, I guess, just over, probably about a generation or so. But is there are there examples of maybe places in Appalachia, other places in America where you see, you know, a, a renaissance, a rebirth? I mean, it, it seems like it's a lot. It's it seems like it's a lot more common to have a Detroit sort of the extreme of a city that was doing so well that has declined so much so dramatically. But it seems like that's an easier story, right? It's an easier to 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 make it to the top and then to decline rather than be trekking along and uh, struggling and then really have a rebirth. Is there, I guess I'm looking, is there, is there any story out there that would be a, a symbol of a hope? Well, I think if you look at a lot of the histories of big cities in America, you will see um, stories of decline and rebirth or stories of cities that um, developed in unexpected ways. You know, Houston was not a particularly significant city uh, for a lot of its history. And uh, then when the hurricane wiped out Galveston and the cotton trade kind of moved to Houston and that created some, you know, longer term economic basis for it. But, um, you know, the way in which Houston was really built, people think it's an oil and gas story, which is part of it. But there's a whole lot of other stuff there, too. Various kinds of manufacturing, uh, you know, finance services. Um, It was kind of built one piece at a time. The same story is true broadly of Los Angeles. Um, which was already a, a big economically sophisticated city before Hollywood became, you know, a very big thing. Um, you know, we now think of Los Angeles as being a city that's primarily about entertainment, but for a long time it was primarily about manufacturing. Um, so, you know, cities change. They um, respond to what's going on in the economy, what's going on in the world. And what governments can do is to make them predictable and stable uh, to create enough flexibility to allow them to change with uh, changing circumstances and to provide the basic services that people need in order to make life livable in a dense urban environment. And that's where places like Detroit really failed. Um, Detroit, you know, people didn't leave Detroit because it was expensive. Um, Detroit's a very cheap place to live. Um, They left because it was safe, because they didn't have schools they wanted to send their kids to, and increasingly because it didn't have jobs for people. Um, there was an investment. There wasn't, you know, a way forward if you were living in Detroit. So people, uh, people left, and of course that's terribly ironic in the case of Detroit because that's how that city was built by people leaving Appalachia and people leaving other places for um, for opportunities there in its factories and other businesses. Um, I can't think off the top of my head of any great examples of you know struggling Appalachian cities that have had a, a real turnaround. Although I, I think. It's probably true of some of the bigger cities, um, you know, Lexington, maybe. Uh, what I really noticed and what was striking to me about um, Owsley County in Kentucky, which I've written a lot about, is that um, nothing happened there. You know, it's not one of these places like, say, Harlan, where there'd been a big coal industry. And then as the coal industry declined, the city declined because it didn't really have much of an economic basis. That wasn't really the, the case in a lot of the in the rest of eastern Kentucky. These were you know, little places that um, never had any particularly very strong economic basis. And there was farming and there was forestry, 
and other kinds of stuff. And the, the usual trade and services you get where you've got any kind of settlement of any size. Um, but essentially what these are, are kind of 19th and early 20th century towns and communities that more or less stayed where they were while the rest of the world uh, became more prosperous and uh, more connected and more sophisticated. So they, they, they really were the places that were, um, were left behind. One of the things that you know I run into every so often is talk about economic devo- development policy, uh, but you know it's it's you've already you've talked about the idea of like you're not going to attract uh, Amazon to Appalachia. Is is there anything that can be done sort of politically for these places? Uh, you know, I think we've had uh, one of our guests was Noah Smith a while back, and one of his ideas is essentially that we should be building universities all over the place. Uh, and I guess that sort of would be the Lubbock model, right? Uh, what you know, in in all of your research, is have you seen? You know, have you come away with any ideas of what can be do- done for some of these places, or should should we just focus on? Uh, maybe understanding the plight of these people, but maybe there's not much of a, a policy that can we can uh, bring to bear for, for these particular communities? Yeah, I think we should think more about people than about places. You know, building a university is maybe a way to uh, shuffle some money into a place, but you, know, you build universities where you've got people who need university educations. Uh, you don't build them as economic development projects and then bring the people in. That's just a, the wrong way to go about it. So we should think about people rather than places. So one of the things that I have uh, advocated over the years is repackaging unemployment benefits into relocation benefits for people who are moving out of economically dying and stagnant areas into places that have more vitality looking for work. Uh, because it can be quite difficult for people to, uh, to move when they've lost a job. Uh, you know, Moving costs money. And when you've just lost your job and your income is down, you don't have any extra money, much less money to do something relatively expensive and disruptive, like move somewhere to go look for a new job. Um, I think we would be doing unemployed people, particularly long-term unemployed people, but also ourselves and the and the state of our social welfare programs a, a great favor by telling people, you know, our goal here is to make you economically self-sufficient. That means that someone in your household is going to have to have a full-time job. And it's going to have to be a full-time job that's sufficient to uh, give you economic independence or something like it. If that's not available here, there are lots of places where it is. How do we get you there? And um, people will resist that for family reasons and social reasons and cultural reasons. And I understand that. I sympathize with it. And relocating is uh, disruptive and, and, and painful. And it can be really uncomfortable if you don't have a lot of money. Uh, which I know because I had to do it several times myself in my earlier life. And, uh, but still, I think it's, it's, it's the best option that we have. I mean, really, our choices are we're going to do something to make these people economically self-sufficient or we're going to maintain them in dependency indefinitely. Those are our only real two choices. And um, I mean, yeah, I suppose we could build 10,000 state universities or 10,000 Air Force bases or whatever else, but that's just a way of laundering social welfare payments through uh, something that pretends to be economic activity. You also need to find uh, enough students. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think we probably send too many people to college as it is. Um, most people, a lot of people who go to college are not really benefiting from from, from a college education. And um, we've also got some pretty dumb ideas about the role of higher education and some that are um, – 
not compatible with each other. Uh, you know, there's part of the country wants higher education to be job training and wants, um, you know, the universities to be measured um, by the criterion of how much money their students make when they leave. Um, but that's not really what a liberal arts education is about or for. And there are a lot of people who uh, will really benefit from that kind of education, but they're not going to make a lot of money uh, because they studied French poetry uh, in college or, or spent four years translating Latin classics or any of these you know, very worthwhile intellectual pursuits that just simply aren't job training. I mean, George Leaf uh, had a, an essay this morning, I guess, in National Review, maybe it was yesterday, about well, we should judge colleges by the upward mobility of the students who go there, which I think is kind of a silly prospect. You know, there are a lot of people who uh, come from one percenter households who go to Princeton or Harvard, and they come out and maybe they're three percenters instead of one percenters. So they've been downwardly mobile, but life still turned out pretty well. And, um, you know, I think that uh, we've got just unserious ideas about that stuff. And this is a lo- an ongoing tirade of mine. You've probably heard me give this speech before, and I'll try to keep it short. But our whole public policy discourse is dominated by the interests and biases of the elites who conduct that conversation, which is why we spend so much time talking about, well, can Harvard practice affirmative action? And we don't spend very much time talking about, have you seen the dropout rate in Baltimore, you know, or Milwaukee? Um, So, you know, people, the people who dominate the policymaking conversation all went to college. We mostly went to pretty elite colleges, care deeply about that stuff. People have real strong emotional feelings about their college years. And so you're going to get, you know, sensible, otherwise sensible people like, you know, Barack Obama is a good good example of this, who often talks, you know, well, what we really need to do is figure out how to get more people to go to Harvard Law School. Worked out well for me. And um, which is true. And there's a certain temptation when you've been very successful in life to look around and go, well, if other people just made the same kinds of decisions I did, they'd be happy too. What can we do to get these people to make the decisions I made? That comes from a, a humane motive, I think. It's good intent. It's well-intentioned, um, but it doesn't take into account the realities of people's lives. And that's one of the things that irritates me deeply about these, you know, gold-plated populists uh, in the conservative movement mm-hmm. who uh, know nothing about poverty in these poor communities and uh, these economically stagnant and often socially isolated rural communities and, you know, appoint themselves kind of tribune to the plebs um, and then basically come up with the same thing, which is, well, what can we do to make sure that these people get factory jobs that pay $200,000 a year, um, which is a pretty rare thing. I think it was just the other day that I think it was Rahm Emanuel was saying that people who lost their jobs from closed coal plants, you know, were going to be retrained to become uh, computer coders or something like that. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. It seems a little uh, uh, fanciful. Yeah, you get a lot of that. Or um, And again, it's often people who don't understand the businesses they're talking about. Like these, you know, sort of greeny uh, progressives who we're going to train homeless people to retrofit houses to make them energy efficient. Really? Because <laughs> this is actually a lot more complicated than you than you know. And a lot of the people who knew this stuff, you know, studied engineering in school. And it ends up being a, a really complex undertaking that maybe uh, someone being pulled out of a homeless shelter is not going to be prepared to do with six weeks of training. Yeah, so so we've we've had a few conversations on this show about 
policies directed at the the working class. And we've, you know, I guess we've worked, I think there's typically some, uh, you know, some definitions of what that working class looks like. But you're, if I understand your, your book correctly, you're, you're talking about just below the working class, right? I mean, you're talking about, uh, prop, you know, I think the problem so is, what, less so, the, is less the working class than the non-working class. Right, right. Yeah. So what, I guess, give, give us a picture of, of that. What's the, you know, what's a picture of sort of that demographic that you're writing about in the book? Well, it's different in different places, you know. So um, there are, you know, these families in places like Eastern Kentucky and Alabama who have been on welfare in the same little town for three generations and four generations and who have developed this, uh, you know, really kind of sophisticated, strange parallel economy in order to just barely get by um, based on social programs and petty crime, uh, essentially. And some really kind of strange, interesting stuff, like um, they use uh, soda as a currency. Uh, so, you know, you will get your uh, food stamp allotment on whatever day of the month it is and go into the store and buy 10 cases of uh, Pepsi. And then these can be traded for cash or they can directly be traded for things like drugs or even prostitution services and that kind of thing. And there's this whole kind of weird wampum uh, economy that's based on uh, cases of soda. Uh, That is the sort of thing that only develops when you've got generations of dependency on these these programs. It takes a long time for those sorts of social norms to uh, develop. And, uh, but it's, it's kind of completely plugged into uh, that society now. So that particular place is, you know, it's, um, it's almost exclusively white. Uh, it's, you know, 98 and a half percent white, something like that. Overwhelmingly uh, Republican voting, maybe, you know, 70%, uh, something like that. More than half of the household, well, more than half of the households, uh, last I checked, um, receiving some form of welfare payment. Lots of crime and lots of drug addiction, but relatively little violent crime. Uh, so there's a lot of, you know, drug peddling and that kind of thing and check hiding. I guess check hiding is not as much of the things it used to be, but, you know, low level fraud of various kinds, but very little murder, uh, that sort of thing. In fact, the violent crime rate there is about half the national average. So it's, uh, you know, it's a complex story. Um, we talk about X, Y, and Z pathologies, whether it's crime or, or other things being really being rooted in poverty. And there's something to that. But the, um, you know, poverty of sparsely populated rural America um, produces very different results from the poverty of densely populated urban America. You know, in, in the past election, you had both, I think it's safe to say that both Trump and Biden tried to position themselves as a champion of the, the working man. And you have Marco Rubio saying we need to, to basically rebrand the GOP as the workers' party. But uh, and in some sense, you know, we, we talk about this concept of the, the forgotten man, but the demographic that you're talking about is still the forgotten man, even when everybody is positioning themselves for this, you know, I guess the, the forlorn work, uh, factory worker that the factory shut down. I mean, this, these are people that never had those jobs or haven't had those jobs for generations, yeah. right? Yeah, I think that Rubio stuff is just, you know, ass ignorant. Uh, <laughs> Well, you know, I mean, the best program for American workers is a tight labor market and economic growth. Um, 
One of the things that I find deeply irritating is that these people who call themselves nationalists and say, you know, we need to be America first and take a national interest have no real national mindedness and no real conception of the national interests of the United States. What they have are a series of discrete parochial interests. So, you know, the steel and aluminum tariffs are a good example of that, where the number of American firms that use steel and aluminum, the jobs that depend on those companies and the profits of those companies produce absolutely dwarfs the jobs and profits and GDP and whatnot attached to the relatively small number of American firms that produce that stuff. Uh, The country is better off with American manufacturers having ready access to lots of different sources of steel and aluminum uh, rather than, you know, being protected from the nefarious Canadians who are always out there. And you got to watch those Canadians. Um, but it's the typical problem of uh, dispersed costs and concentrated benefits. So if you're a steel producer, you love these tariffs because it allows you to raise your prices and uh, takes foreign competitors out of the market. If you're someone who has to buy this stuff, like a car manufacturer um, or someone who builds buildings or someone who produces beer, uh, you know, Aluminum is the number one expense of America's beer makers because uh, it costs more to make cans than it does to make beer. Uh, then this stuff cuts into your business. Now, maybe it only cuts in 3 4% somewhere. Maybe it cuts in a bit more. Um, they don't cry out as loudly, typically, as the uh, people who are being protected do. But if you were really interested in the national interest of the country, you would say, uh, well, we have a lot of manufacturing here, and it tends to be mostly pretty high-tech manufacturing. And we make things like airplanes and automobiles. Um, these people need access to materials and components, and the more easy we make it to get those things, the more competitive our businesses are. Uh, what we need to do is you know, expand their access to overseas markets, um, which is part of what our trade policy should be doing and sometimes is kind of halfway pretends to do, but they always do it in the sort of the dumbest way of just, well, we're going to put tariffs on you know, Chinese goods until Chinese people start buying American stuff. Uh, which is a really dumb way to uh, go about it. You know, one of the things I mentioned in the book, um, I spent some time with soybean producers in um, South Dakota. And the U.S. Soybean Association had an office in Beijing for 25 years before they sent their first shipment of soybeans to China. Uh, now, China is the number one you know, export market for, for U.S. soybeans because they use it for animal feed. It's a huge part of the farm economy. Um, but it took a long time to develop those relationships and the protocols and the uh, you know, intellectual and physical infrastructure for allowing that trade to happen. And then the, the tariffs and the retaliatory tariffs from the Chinese, of course, just disrupted that and uh, probably permanently devalued uh, all those investments. So how business actually works, how growth actually happens, where productivity comes from, is you know a complicated story full of very specific things. It's not about political ideologies and kind of philosophical generalities. Um, there's a process by which soybeans go from South Dakota to pig farms in China, and billions and billions of dollars of American income depend on that. And we just have politicians who run around disrupting that stuff on a whim uh, because they looked at some you know trade deficit numbers that they don't even understand. And decided that the thing to do would be just to throw a monkey wrench into the system and hope that however the machinery falls apart magically works better than the way it was put together before. Um, this is a really dangerous and stupid way of going about things. But 
you know, you put a crackpot like Peter Navarro in charge of your trade policy, what do you expect? <laughs> I don't know. I, if you I want say to that, talk by about... the way, advisedly. I got assigned to read this guy's books once upon a time. Oh my gosh. And uh, read Peter Navarro's books and write about him for National Review. And I've done some really depressing things in my journalistic career, and I've seen some awful stuff. Um, but this was a low point. I think there, there was uh, one time where, uh, back when Jonah Goldberg was at National Review, they tried to get him to go on an all vegan diet for a month. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if you had to choose between an all vegan diet and reading Peter Navarro that you what you would what you would pick. But uh, well, I'm surprised. Jonah, I'm surprised Jonah didn't go for that because I think your scotch is vegan, right? <laughs> <laughs> and so are uh, so are cigars, right? Uh, you could have a happy life. I, I believe I've read some of the pieces or the prior what were the germinations for the pieces in, in this book. But mm-hmm. uh, you mentioned Santa Barbara, I believe, is one of the locations that you talk about. San Bernardino. San Bernardino. Excuse me. Excuse me. Yeah. Uh, Santa Barbara is much nicer. Santa Barbara. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Uh, so, yeah. what What's going on in San Bernardino? Well, I went there when they went bankrupt. Okay. All right. Yeah. There so you go. When they were declaring their bankruptcy, I was going around California writing about all of California's bankrupt municipalities at that time. And uh, San Bernardino was one of the more prominent uh, cities in California. Stockton, to did Stockton go bankrupt? Or? Yeah, Stockton yeah. did and a few others as well. And uh, there's always talk of Los Angeles doing it, but um, so far, no real indication that that's going to, going to happen anytime in the near future. So I went to the city council meeting where this was you know, discussed and where the uh, resolution went through that they were going to seek bankruptcy protection and all that. And um, it has made me despair for a democracy because these were the dumbest people I've ever seen in my life and just uniformly embarrassing, self-important, posturing, ignorant, uh, useless, useless people. I'm surprised San Bernardino wasn't in worse shape than it was. Um, And it's a sad town, you know, because San San Bernardino is exactly the story that we talk about, which that it thrived for a while in the post-war era. And it was a place where there was a lot of aerospace uh, manufacturing and that kind of work. And then that business migrated to other places and San Bernardino couldn't really come up with a plan B for itself. There's this giant uh, mall in the middle of San Bernardino called uh, Carousel. And it's got, you know, this abandoned merry-go-round in the middle of it and all the stores are empty. I think out of the 225 slots or something when I was there. Uh, three of them were occupied. One was a nail salon, one was a law office and something else. None of them were actually stores. And, you know, the carousel hadn't been turned on in 20 years. And the doors to the San Bernardino City Hall had fallen off the hinges and they just kind of had it boarded up in a sign that said out of order, which I thought was really perfectly symbolic. If I'd been a novelist instead of a journalist, I couldn't have made up a more telling uh, detail. And again, it's one of those deals where it's not like there was an earthquake and San Bernardino is trying to recover from it. Um, It's had some problems that are 20, 30, 40, 50 years in the making and plenty of time to uh, try to deal with those, but it's found itself unable to for various reasons. And uh, that has to do with lack of effective institutions, lack of good local governance, and, um, of course, larger problems that are more to do with the state of California than with the city of San Bernardino. 
so uh, you know we're 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 now at the f- the final couple months of the Trump administration, and I, I get what what does what does life look like for Kevin Williamson? Uh, in a in a post Trump world, and the reason I ask that is you've you know you and some other people uh, who've mentioned Jonah Goldberg um, have had to uh, sort of walk the line of defending your your particular conservative views in uh, an environment of uh, sort of Trumpian ideas taking over the entire conservative movement. What's what's what do you think that you're you know, what what is what does life look like for you in the coming months? And also, what do you think is going to happen with the the conservative movement um, after Trump? Well, a couple of things. I think it's important to distinguish between the conservative movement and the circus of, you know, Fox News and talk radio and the entertainment stuff. Um, You know, the, the Fox News talk radio stuff is basically like a big game of Dungeons and Dragons. You know, it's essentially a fantasy role playing game in which the point is to tell each other stories that make you feel a certain way and give your humdrum everyday existence a sense of drama and uh, excitement. And that is, you know, not my business, and I don't have to worry about it too much. Uh, Thankfully, National Review is the sort of institution that um, allows me to be pretty well insulated from that stuff. So, you know, I don't watch cable news. I don't listen to talk radio very much unless I'm in the car and I'm tired of my podcasts. Um, I do every now and just sort of check in and like, what are these people up to? And, uh, how crazy has Dennis Prager got? (laughs) uh, Turns out crazy. Um, so that stuff, I think it's, um, it's a form of entertainment that like fashion operates according to its own logic and its own sort of momentum. I don't think that really has anything to do with me. So I don't think about it very much. Uh, the Republican party, which is also distinct from the conservative movement, I think we'll probably try some variation of Trumpism for at least the next two years, if not the next four years. And the reasons for that are that it produced pretty good electoral results for them. Uh, you know, Donald Trump very nearly won re-election, um, which is amazing because he's an incompetent clown governing after a huge economic disruption in the middle of a plague. If anyone is not going to get reelected, um, it's it's that particular poisonous buffoon. Um, he got pretty close. Um, you know, Trump did better with women. He did better with African-Americans, did better with Latinos, did better with gay people, um, did better with every, everybody except white guys, uh, pretty much. Yeah, that's the problem. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. Um, Turns out there's well, a lot of white guys in uh, Michigan and uh, Pennsylvania and Wisconsin. I think that has to do a lot to do with the, you know, we've talked about this before, the the illiterate, silly anti-urbanism of the Republican Party. Uh, you know, the cities are basically all Sodom and Gomorrah. And if you've got aspirations that take you in that direction, you're not a real American and you shouldn't be part of our team and we don't want you in our coalition. That's just a losing attitude because that's where the people and the money are going. Um, but, you know, so I think that if I were... Ted Cruz or Nikki Haley or Marco Rubio or someone like that, Christy Noem, I might be looking at this and saying, well, imagine what a sort of Trump type movement, a Trump type coalition could accomplish if it were led by someone who wasn't a complete freaking incompetent moron. Um, and that's, you know, got to be pretty tempting in some ways. 
you know, this sort of cheap nationalist populism is, is big in both parties. I mean, people forget that Bernie Sanders ran a very similar campaign to Donald Trump's in 2016. I went out with him. He was giving immigration speeches that Donald Trump could have given, you know, talking about how they're trying to flood the American market with these foreigners who are going to undercut the position of American workers in order to protect the profits of, uh, you know, billionaires who pull the strings behind the scenes. Um, you know, he's got very similar attitudes toward trade and that sort of thing. Biden has tried to, you know, out hawk Trump on China and trade and some other things too. So this sort of, you know, daft nationalism, populism has some currency on both sides, um, uh, because it's a very attractive form of demagoguery because it's based on a politics of having someone to blame rather than a politics of, holy crap, we have to do some stuff and some of it's going to be hard. So I, I have a question. Uh, one of your previous books was titled The End is Near and It's Going to Be Awesome. And so I just wanted to follow up on each of those two parts. Do you still think the end is near and do you still think it's going to be awesome? Uh, yeah, eventually. You know, as I said in the book, I'm a long-term optimist, short-term pessimist. And um, currently my short-term pessimism maybe is the dominant part of my thinking, but I'm still, I think, a long-term optimist. Um, you know, the things that we did over the course of the 20th century and the early 20th century that made the world a radically better place, which it is a radically better place. We're much better off than we used to be. People live longer. They're healthier. They've got more options. They've got more safety. They've got more security. They've got better food. They're able to travel. They're able to enrich themselves in various kinds of ways. We reduced serious policy poverty around the world by, you know, 60, 70 percent in, um, by some measures. So these have all been great things. And the practices and processes and investments that made those things possible are still with us. And they are still going to contribute the way they have before. Um, we're going to see a continuing growth in standard of living and human flourishing and um, all the basic material stuff that um, we sometimes forget to appreciate, but which is hard to uh, to do much without. So the future is coming, uh, but it doesn't have to come to the United States. There are other people who want this future too. Um, there are other people who would like to say, well, gosh, if America is no longer all that friendly to your business, we, we'd be happy to have you here in Singapore. We'd be happy to have you here in India. We'd be happy to have you here in Switzerland or Germany. And um, that has to be, I think, an element in our, in our, in our thinking as well. Um, investments are going to be made and profits are going to be had, but they don't have to be here. It's a very fluid, very connected, and financially speaking, a much smaller world than it used to be. And this is a real problem, I think, for places like New York City, where, you know, once upon a time, if you were in finance or media or book publishing or fashion or art, you had to have an office in New York City. Now you don't. And uh, one of the things I think actually that maybe is an opportunity for some of these smaller towns that have um, struggled is uh, the change in the nature of work following the coronavirus epidemic with a lot more people working from home, working remotely or working largely from home. And you've seen some uh, smart stuff on this. Like, uh, I don't know if this will work out for them, but the Chamber of Commerce in Monahans, Texas, has been working really hard to get uh, high speed Internet uh, available out there. And uh, that's a real, that's a real thing. You know, I mean, we live in, in Dallas and we've thought about sometimes moving to a more, uh, you know, rural setting too. But um, 
it's difficult to get a high-speed internet connection in a lot of these places, which makes it difficult for us to do our work. Um, but these are things you can say, well, you know, we're a town uh, in a lovely environment, maybe in the Appalachian Mountains somewhere, uh, a lot of, you know, great scenery, not much economic activity. But if you've got a job that's based in New York or Los Angeles or somewhere else, and you can work from anywhere, well, gosh, you can come out here and for $200,000 buy a nice house on 40 acres and have, you know, some land around you. And we'll try to figure out how to uh, get the sort of amenities and infrastructure you need to be able to do that. I think some of the more intelligent, uh, forward-looking small towns and rural areas have a real opportunity here they could jump on if they wanted to. All right. Well, on that note, uh, Kevin, thank you so much for oh, joining thank us. Thank you. It's always a pleasure to talk to you guys. 